The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Marin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Marin Somerset Webb. This week, we are revisiting our conversation on the UK property market. This week, with an extra guest, Bloomberg Opinion columnist Marcus Ashworth. Some might say also an expert on this topic. We get a lot of experts on this podcast. Now, thank you both for joining us. Of course, sorry, I forgot to say, you know the other person joining us for this conversation. It's John Stepek. John Stepek of the wild, crazy housing market forecasts. How much is the housing market going to fall, John? Tell us one more time. Well, I said 30% in real terms. But I would just like to blame Neil, who was on our last podcast, who said 40% in real terms. So yeah. Why go properly crazy? News your mind. Well, I'm sure Neil is listening in. Um, now, Marcus, I know that you are one of the few people left who is not insanely bearish on the UK property market. So how about we start with you telling John exactly why he's wrong, which we're getting used to, aren't you, John? Oh, yes. <laughs> Go, Marcus. Let's blame Neil first. It's much easier. Um, but no, he's he's bigger than I am. So um, let's blame John instead. Look, um, firstly, I don't think you should look at uh, house prices, which are an asset as opposed to a good or a service uh, in real terms. I think it's meaningless. House price inflation is what it is. But to compare it, contrast it in real terms, I don't think is a, a statistically good habit for starters. Nonetheless, Realistically, I am not necessarily bullish on the UK housing market. We've had a very big run, 20% plus since the pandemic, and a bit of a froth is coming off here. And we will probably go to a small negative number uh, year on year gains by the summer. Uh, From there, I've got no real idea, but I'm pretty certain no one else does either, which gives me more confidence that the housing market is in perfectly good shape. It's had a stop start moment, uh, as we all know. Uh, from September, October. And I really thought that was just, uh, everyone thought, let's forget about the rest of 2022, come back in 2023. And there are every signs that volumes, prices, uh, mortgage activity is sufficiently robust. I think the market has changed a bit at the moment. I think it's much more cash-led. I think people are prepared to do life you know, decisions uh, without total focus on mortgage rates. As we all know, uh, less than a third, about 30% of houses have mortgages. And the people who do tend to buy houses are wealthier and they indeed um, are probably seeing reasonable wage earnings. You know, we've got a very strong labor market. And I think there's too much going on where people are reaching for what they want to see and what they think ought to happen rather than practically will happen 
in a very complicated, regulated and protected market, the UK housing. Small island, ridiculous planning rules, uh, banking sector, which wants desperate to lend money, uh, plenty of money in savings kicking about. Um, and just demand is much, much higher than supply. Ergo, you can see what rents are doing going straight up. I think that's going to feed through and support housing. So, you know, I'm not saying it's going to go up. I just don't think it's going to go down by very much at all. Okay. But to the extent that any any market operates on supply and demand, prices are set at the margin, right? So if we if we look at interest rates in the UK, I accept that you know not everyone is paying four percent on their mortgage, but nonetheless, all these fixed mortgages are going to roll off soon, and a lot of people are going to have a nasty shock. Mortgage rates have gone up very, very significantly. Even if you you know take out take out last year's blip, we're still up a lot. That's making servicing these mortgage costs significantly higher. And while we may be seeing high uh, pay settlements in some areas of the economy, it's not across the board. So it still seems to me that that's got to have an impact. I mean, here we are, page two of the uh, FT today. Buyers hold upper hand in cooling house market. Good for the FT, but they're normally wrong on this stuff. As I said, you can think what you want to, and you can look, look a parallel across the mortgage rates, but the practical reality, it, they don't make that much difference in people making decisions whether they're going to buy a house or not. We've seen the gap between asking prices come down a bit. That's perfectly normal. Start of the year, there's plenty of activity. Sellers have been far more realistic and buyers are still keen to buy. So, I mean, look, we've got we've probably got sort of a, a three-way split in the UK at the moment. We've got the sort of lower end where people are feeling very much the pressure of the cost of living, renters in particular. Uh, we've got this middle band, which is probably going to get hit most by mortgages, clearly. I, I certainly bought my first property with, you know, 15% plus mortgage rates. I mean, there are ways and means people can get around this. It's been seen and been coming for a long, long while. People have got plenty of savings. And there's ways of moving around the mortgage market. I mean, you know, there's tracker rates. Uh, we can see what's happening in, in bond yields uh, in the last few days. You know, they've come down sharply. That's going to feed through to lower mortgages. We know we can get five-year fixes below 4%. The, the swap curve, which is where a lot of banks do their hedging in, is dropped to 37 or below now for 10-year fixes uh, and around four for five-year. Banks are prepared to lend below both the swap curve and indeed below where the Bank of England are, as far as interest rates are concerned. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, the banks are working around it, and I think everyone else will too. You know, I'd quite like to delve into there because I think that a lot of our listeners would probably appreciate a somewhat better understanding of how mortgages are priced. So you've just talked about swap rates their markets. So I think a lot of people listening will probably think that the mortgage rate is roughly set by the Bank of England base rate. But actually, it's set by market expectations for what's going to happen to interest rates. Is that kind of more accurate to say? You know, talk us through a little bit of the kind of arcana of of banks pricing mortgages. Sure. I mean, first things first, there, there are two elements to, to a mortgage. One is the Bank of England base rate, prevailing market interest rates. It's really the swap curve, which is most important. I'll come back to that in a second. And the second is the credit spread at which, you know, the bank is prepared to lend to you uh, as opposed to lend to another bank. And what's fascinating at the moment for one is that credit spread has basically completely disappeared. And that means banks are very long cash and want to do something with it. Bear in mind, a mortgage is secured lending and often with a nice big fat uh you know percentage uh, safety uh deposits which we call 
uh, which protects the bank uh, from any formal losses. So the practical reality here is that banks are prepared to be more aggressive in what they are prepared to offer out to their sort of mortgage brokers or, or teams that, that go out there and get the retail customers in. Uh, normally, what would happen is that a treasurer would say, okay, I've got a billion pounds here. I'm going to give that to my mortgage team, go out and lend. You've got that now for however long you need it for. I will then go and hedge that billion at the prevailing swap rate. And that's where I'm going to fix my my my, my, my benchmark. Mm-hmm. I've got everything sort of all my ducks in a line. Now, that only happens when it, it's sort of you know, perhaps in a, a, a in, in a market whereby we don't have very volatile interest rates. What has happened recently is clearly banks are not hedging anything near as much as they were uh, a few years ago, certainly, and they are prepared to take straightforward cash that they're getting in from deposits and put it straight out to work in the mortgage market and just making a nice fat net interest margin. So the normal rules which prevailed perhaps before the pandemic aren't really happening, that how, how banks hedge themselves. And certainly the net amounts they're needing to hedge is almost evaporated. Which is one of the reasons not to get too complicated here, while the swap curve has dropped dramatically and got it inverted, because there's so much less pressure on keeping interest rate hedges up, as in banks buying protection for higher rates. They don't need to as much, therefore rates have fallen. So it's all feeding in on itself. And I just think that uh, what's fascinating to me is that you know throughout the, the start of the pandemic, we had a massive credit spread whereby it looked it was really difficult to get a mortgage, six, seven percent sometimes. That evaporated quickly. It came back again after the skills crisis, where the banks panicked and yanked all their their sort of best buy rates and started posting, you know, mark to make believe rates in just to avoid business. Unfortunately, the media then jumped on this and started saying average mortgage rates have gone through the moon and it's all disastrous and the world's ending. But the practical reality is, you could always get a best buy below six percent in the in the two year fix. Now that's much as Marin's pointed out, much harder and nastier than it was. A few months prior, but uh, basically people stopped borrowing money. They stayed, they put hold on their mortgage uh, and their house price purchases and wait till the start of this year where things got a lot more attractive. You can get very aggressive tracker rates. You can get a two-year fix now, which is probably been my sort of, I think, where the sweet spot is if you wish to borrow money and buy, how forced to remortgage or buy a house at the moment, I would look good at, at a two-year fix. And then indeed, the five-year fixes, which we mentioned earlier, which are around 4%, which is a lot better than they, than they were a few months back, but still a lot more expensive. But people buy houses because they, there, there are a lot of other reasons than just where the mortgage interest rates are, and they can normally afford it quite comfortably. Um, Mark, just go back a bit. What, what, what can you get a two-year fix for at the moment? Around 4%, maybe a little bit over, um, but certainly uh, 4 and, and, and a little bit of change. And five-year, you can get around certainly below 4%. I mean, co-op went a bit lower. They always tend to pull their, their offers very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'd like to get a lot of free headlines. But, I mean, I would say uh, you could certainly get a two-year fix at just around, just over 4%, and five-year maybe a little bit below. But I would wait because I think interest rates are probably going to come down over the course of well, later on this year. If you can afford to wait then great. I mean, that's the trouble with banks. They When they make a mortgage offer to you and you've got it confirmed, you've got six months. Uh, and that, that that's quite a long time for a bank to be exposed on interest rates. That's why they're perhaps a little bit cautious on going lower on interest rates just yet, mortgage rates, but I think they probably will. Okay. So the fact that house prices are, are still at, actually, I was going to say near record, but still at uh, yeah. record ratios relative to incomes, that doesn't bother you. Because you reckon that the people who want to buy houses right now can still afford those much higher levels of interest rate. You don't see 
any problem when <laughs> people who are on 2% at the moment have to roll on to 4% or 5% or any problem with people saying, well, do you know what? I could afford to pay half a million pounds for that house when the interest rate was 2%, but actually I can only afford to pay 350,000. Now it's four or five. Now, it hurts me in my soul. Don't get me wrong. I think this is a, an iniquitous way that the, the, the market works. I, but just as you know, in the brutal reality of the real world, it doesn't make any difference. If you can't afford, you're out the game. Very sorry about that. But you'll have to you know, rethink and come back another time. There are plenty of people. And particularly, it's interesting on how many cash purchases are being made. Mm. This is a phenomenon in the, in the buy-to-let market whereby everyone leveraged themselves, bought lots of properties, and and just look at capital values going up and with very low interest rates have been doing a very nice little uh, retirement planning uh, part for themselves. Of course, we know the government has taken a lot of the fun out of that. They've taxed it. They're regulating it. And now interest rates going up. There's clearly going to be some pain in, in the buy to let. But there is plenty, it seems, of cash money coming in and picking up, particularly in the rental type properties and buying it outright and take them out of the market. And that's what's squeezing house prices up. It's interesting you mentioned buy-to-let markets because that seems to me to be one of the elephants in the room of the UK housing market. You know, it's been some one of the struts of the UK housing market for some decades now. And as you say, a lot of people have been perfectly happy as expenses have risen and the tax regime has changed. They've been happy to barely break even on an annual basis and for a lot of people to be cash flow negative on an annual basis, happy in the knowledge that they're making 10% plus a year on capital gains, so it doesn't really matter. Now, if those capital gains are gone, in nominal terms at least, um, and their expenses are still rising because there's whole rafts of new legislation coming through. There's the energy performance certification, there's the extra stamp duty, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of stuff going on here. You're losing money every year, every month, and you're not going to make the capital gains either if we all accept your premise that maybe prices will stay flat for a while. That looks to me like we may see a huge amount of additional selling coming into the market. And how many two-bedroom stock, um, two-bedroom flats can this market absorb? Plenty, because cash buyers are coming in. It's the bank of mum and dad. Now, I hear what you're saying, and I think for some people at the margin, that's clearly the case. However, it seems that there's a lot of capital gains built up over the years. If this is a long-term strategy, as it is for most people, they'll take the rough of the smooth for a year or two of higher interest rates with the expectation they'll probably come down a bit anyway. But what we're forgetting here is is the other side of the equation, which is rents, and they're going up through the roof, up seventeen percent in London terms, and close to thirteen or fourteen percent the rest of the country. This is softening the blow. Now, I don't think it means people are going to break even, but a lot of people look at this and say, "Okay, I'm losing a bit this year. This isn't quite attractive. Maybe I'll try and sell when my uh, rental agreement comes up, or I'll reduce a few of my properties if they've got several." But a lot will just say, "You know what?" I've had a great run on this. I'm going to take a bit of a mark-to-market hit on it, but I'll, I'll carry it on. And it clearly seems that, that people who are uh, are turning over their, their buy-to-lets and selling, and there will be a few because obviously it will be expensive with these, these fixes. Um, one, they're quite savvy and they can get better deals and you'd be very surprised. The buy-to-let market still very aggressive. You can, uh, you can get uh, fixes um, on buy-to-let terms, really very attractive, certainly sub 5%. So, uh, there isn't the, the, the pressure that perhaps might have been uh, last year on that, but there's plenty of cash buyers out there. And that's what's going to take up um, the slack because literally people are getting bought uh, flats for by their parents. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. 
Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, one thing that, that you said that um, I know I'm, I'm, I'm uh, possibly too pessimistic, but when you talk about rents going up 17%, 13%, 14%, do you know what I think? I think rent right. controls. Rent controls. You know, we yeah. have them in Scotland already. I'd be amazed if in the current political environment, you could have rents rising at that kind of speed in London and not see some controls put in place. Is that what well, you're you look at, Be- uh, at uh, Berlin, at least at Belgium there, but I'm sure they've got some bad experience as well. But, mm. but Berlin, certainly, an absolute disaster where there's a, just a massive illegal uh, market, secondary market whereby you can't rent everything because it's on rent control. It, the mm. rent controls do not work. Of They're course they don't work. Of course they don't work. They're a total disaster. But politically, they sound absolutely brilliant, which is why you get them all the time. And my people talk about them all the time. And I don't know how many blogs and articles I've written about the general disasters of rent controls. There are enough case studies to make anyone with even half a sentient brain say rent controls, we mustn't do that. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it won't happen. That's not how politics works. I not how modern politics works. I don't think it's going to happen in, in, in England. Scotland is a different story. But uh, I, I certainly think that they just the simple answer is we have to build more properties. Housing associations have to replace the things they sell off uh, two to one ratio by by building you, you know, we know we've got uh, a situation whereby big business, big insurers, uh, the Black Rocks, the legal and generals are ready to move in and provide uh, build to rent houses. Um, that's necessarily isn't a great development. But at some point, that's what Michael Gove has got a very important job here. And he's making some progress, for instance, on cladding. He knows this is the big uh, existential risk for the Tory party that they're not going to get re-elected if, if they lose their entirety of their uh, uh, younger voters who are, who are not going to want to be able to uh, vote for a party which won't allow them on the housing ladder till, mm. uh, into their mid to late 30s now. That's the average. It's a disgrace. It's a shock. It's it's a horrible way our system works. 
But practically speaking, you know, we've got four or five very large builders who dominate the building sector. Uh, we were at risk of letting that switch into the same for the for the uh, rental market. We're not careful by by completely freezing out the private landlords. The government's got to get out the way of here. The planning uh, rules have got to be changed, and we've got to build more houses. None of that's going to happen in the short term. But I clearly think that the government and both sides of the of, of the of Commons need to think very very carefully about this because it's 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 ruinous for our youth. I think this is kind of the point because you know I, I guess my scenario of you know thirty percent fall in in real terms and the reason I quote in real terms is because that reflects improving affordability. So when you get affordability improved, then you get rid of this kind of political and it's a massive political problem. I mean you're right because. You know, home ownership in the UK is now down to, you know, sub 65% kind of levels, uh, which is getting on for, you know, I mean, Germany's 50%. You know, if we, if we go much further, then we're going to end up having, you know, hardly any homeowners and an extremely insecure rental kind of tenure. So I think this is the problem is that if the affordability doesn't improve this way, then really, Marcus, I guess what, what you're saying or what it sounds like you're saying is that we're on a road to a market where uh, you know, the vast majority of the kind of younger population is stuck renting. And then anyone who does get on the mortgage kind of market ends up taking out their first mortgage at an average kind of, you know, tenure of like over 30 years rather than 25 years as it was when, when we were buying. So it, it, it sounds, it's, it just kind of sounds quite dystopian, to be honest. You'd think there has to be a political tipping point. Yeah, and I think we're we're not far away from it. I think I think Marin's right to point out that you know if you start getting screams for rent controls, then then you know the the, the fallout is is going to be far and wide. Nonetheless, that's going to keep house prices up. Um, you know, not for the right reasons. Um, we've already got a, an affordability ratio which is way above you know what perhaps it once used to be. I don't worry at all about extended terms of mortgages. I think that's a, a you know a red herring in the sense that that's just people being smart. Uh, Turning out their debt, keeping their payments as low as possible, shifting to interest only, whatever it may be, do what you need to do to get through the next year or two, um, and that's that's the smart sort of uh, finances. And I think banks are very flexible and mature about that. I mean, that's the one good news we've got here. We've got a we've got a banking sector or, or property lending sector which is keen to do business, uh, and that's why I think the market is is fairly active. Uh, we've seen sellers being far more. Uh, you know, say flexible on on what the prices, asking prices, and, and between actual trader prices are, are down by somewhere around six percent. So uh, yes, we're going to get a drop in in, in mortgage approvals, uh, particularly for first time buyers this year. That's just symptomatic of, of, of much higher interest rates. It's a rough crawl market for for those who can't afford to get on the first step of the ladder. But for those on the ladder, things are going to carry on as normal. I mean, look, I, I'm sitting here with with uh, with well, one's one's renting, but two. Two uh, sort of you know early twenties children who I'd like to see out of my home and in a rental <laughs> properties, who who literally are being priced out the market, and that's that's hurting me because I'm having to support them. So I mean, I'm buy them flats, Marcus. Buy well, them flats. Yes, if all the other parents thing. are doing it, why can't you? 
It's the obvious thing for a journalist to be able to afford to do, exactly. <laughs> Work harder. Now, listen, um, I don't know where your children are looking to rent, but let's talk about how we, we always talk about this market as being one market. We talk about the UK property market. And of course, it's nothing of the sort. There are so many different markets and inside it, it's a very regional market. So, you know, you've got prices down 17% in Southampton and prices up in Exeter. They're only an hour and a half drive apart. Are they? I'm not that up on the south of England anymore. How long does it take to drive from Exeter to Southampton? Two hours? I, don't know. I, I wouldn't hmm? start from there. Uh, oh, don't I, be I, like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go, Marcus. Where would you start from? Yeah, but I think the point is exactly right. I mean, it, it's, it's, you can't, I mean, central London or, or, or sort of the environs further out is where my children were looking to rent, you know, probably. But uh, that's a different market altogether compared to certain parts of uh, of the rest of the country which are you know, say just take exeter here as you said that that's a uh, very much a localized economy and it works on different ways however price house prices have probably been doing better in um cheaper areas over the last uh few years and you know, rents work in a different way but certainly the, the london upswing or so we say urban centers big urban centers are are, are were hit very hard during the pandemic uh, a lot of landlords took it on the chin, agreed much lower rates, and now we're seeing the flip side of it being super strong, and they're they're now pushing rates up by as much as fifty or sixty percent on rent reviews. So you know, it's a very localized market, house price wise. It's becoming a very much an unpleasant uh, urban rental market, but still there is a paucity of, of of houses to rent throughout the country, and it's creating very strange effects. What ever happened to the idea that no one was ever going to have to live in a city centre again and we could all move to the back end of Northumberland and it would be fine? <laughs> Quite worked out, has it? Yeah, they always they want us back in the office, I think, is, is part of the problem. Um, and people are realising that it's it's all well and good, but it's actually much more expensive to live out in the country than it is in, in a city centre. And, you know, people perhaps miss the vibe. Yeah, yeah. And they're getting really cold as well, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah, heating. That's the other thing. Heating is a problem. Um, you know, John and I have talked about this before when we were talking about how much we thought prices might fall and which areas might fall most. We thought that it was those those detached houses in the country that would suffer the most in any proper house price crash. Yeah, big hypothermic country failed. They tend to yeah. go they're completely dead. And, and what happens there is that market just stops, uh, as in you get a, a bit off a spread of 10 or even 20%, whereby people aren't prepared to move unless they get what they thought was the high print and no one is prepared to pay up and buy something which they know is going to cost them a king's ransom just to heat, let alone maintain. Because it, it is much more expensive to live out, you know, needing extra cars and petrol and the whole the whole rest of it. It is it's just certainly uh, what looked great uh, perhaps in the pandemic. Everyone wants to flee the disease-ridden urban centres is now turned around a bit on itself. But I think the other thing as well is there is definite uh, younger move back into urban centre, move back into into working, back into the office and trying to get back on with their lives. And that's what's driving the rental surge. Yeah, well, I mean, the rental thing's interesting because last year, so during the pandemic, I actually knew quite a few people who managed to get absolutely fantastic deals on the London rents uh, because, you know, everyone had moved out. And a lot of people either got to move much closer to Zone 1 for the same price they were paying for Zone 6 or whatever, you know, or got a bigger place for less money. So I do think partly the, you know, the rampant rebound you know, it's just a, an adjustment to the last couple of years in which rents actually fell, which is the other thing about the, the return from working from home. Yeah, I hope you're right too. What it all kinds of looks like, both in the rental market and in the buying market, is that everything is simply going back to where it was before COVID. And so 
post-COVID prices are going to be almost identical to pre-COVID prices. That 20% uplift in buying prices disappears. The uh, rent that went down a lot during COVID and are going back up to where they were. And then here we are, like the whole thing never happened. I think house prices will remain 20%-ish above where they were before pandemic. That's that's. I think we're going to tread water. So I don't think we're going to go down in price very much is, is my overall opinion, just because I think yeah. that the, the dynamics of supply and demand are so strong. I think the rental push is going to soften the blow for those buy-to-let trying to people get get out exits i think they'll 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 all and the, the amount of cash kicking around both in banks and people who are prepared to use its deposit is sufficient just to keep all of it you know i take and i hope john's right with as far as the rental uh you know calming down i think he, he is right in the sense it's got over overbought uh blown a bit and, and then things will come down in rental it price increases that may start to feed through into a, into a general calming and, and just a choppy market, I think, in in house prices overall. And it, but it will become ever more localised. It's a stock picking market. You know, it depends on your on your, on your sector. Uh, stock pickers world. Um, John, have you been convinced by markets that you are completely wrong? Oh, of course, absolutely. Oh, come on, <laughs> I can't give him that easily. I, no, I mean, honestly, I. From, Everything you said, all I would say is I think the the real difference is that uh, I and I think I think probably what say there is they'll weight the change in interest rates much more heavily than you do, Marcus. Because I mean I I hear you on all of these things, um, and you're clearly not desperately bullish on the housing market either. It's sort of like you're basically seeing kind of flat single digit nominal falls. And I guess in nominal terms, I'm probably saying about 15% nominal, 15% inflation. So we're not actually, you know, as far apart as it might sound. Um, oh, no. He's statistical sleight of hand here. I do think, though, that interest rates are, you know, if, 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 if you, I think the, yeah, the other perhaps fundamental difference is that I think that we're in a secular regime of higher or more volatile inflation and therefore kind of systemically higher interest rates and even if they stick it 3.5 percent to four percent that is a lot higher than they were you know two three years ago and that's that just don't see how that that's got to have an impact on property prices and historically it's always had an impact on property prices and you don't even need because the other thing is i'm not actually particularly bearish on the uk economy you know i think there's a good chance we'll skip recession this year i mean let's Park what's going on with banks elsewhere in the world, but you know we we might get away with no recession. Uh, things might improve a lot. I still think that because of the higher mortgage rates, there just has to be some adjustment in prices. It doesn't need to be catastrophic for the wider economy, but yeah, I think yeah, like in a ten to fifteen percent nominal fall is very realistic. I agree with John. Oh, well, you know, look, if the world falls apart and, and there was a, a banking crisis or indeed, you know, the economy does go into recession, you may well prove to be right. I mean, it's one of these things that, you know, the housing market is clearly uh, fragile. Um, it had a nasty shock last year. It seems to have recovered perfectly well as if it never really happened. It really was the six weeks of madness. And then, you know, everyone's shaking themselves off and got back to what they were doing beforehand. That's my opinion. But, you know, that. There's a fine line here. I mean, if interest rates were to go to say six percent from the Bank of England, then I, I think you, your your view might be proved more correct. I just think they're probably going to stop around four. And I think the fact that banks are so keen to lend, and I think the fact that people have so much 
evident cash and prepared to to get on with their lives and, and buy that flat if they want to with the help of mum and dad maybe that uh that the housing prices are probably set fairly stable uh and may chop around a bit but i mean come on three or four percent mortgages <laughs> i was used to 15 yeah and look how much lower house prices were then yeah, please don't mention that fact. That fact I'm sorry. <laughs> right. Listen, you two, we're gonna to have to come back to this in a year, I think. Marcus, can we invite you back on this podcast in one year from today to have this conversation a, again? A pleasure. And and there'll have to be a a lunch or some some form of alcohol uh, on on riding on this, John. So I'm sure we can work that out as well. Oh, um, so. Yes, you two. I thought you had a bet going already, you two. It's basically a lunch. It's lunch. I want, to, I want to double down on it, though. I, I can I can smell blood here. Okay. <laughs> the only thing I would say to you, Marcus, is statistically speaking, John and I have to be right one day. Yes. Right? I'm, I'm one sure, day sure. we have to be right. On the stop clock theory, one day there's got to be a proper housing crash in the UK. Listen, I want to finish with reading you a tweet from one of our uh, one of our favourite property sources, Henry Pryor, who's a buying agent, who sent a tweet the other day that I thought was really good, actually. And it may all seem obvious to lots of people, but I don't think it's obvious to lots of sellers. Things that don't count when working out what your home is worth, what you paid for it, what you need what your neighbor is asking for his, what your friends think, what your estate agent says, what it might cost to rebuild, and crucially, because we've all heard people complaining about this, what you've spent on it. (laughs) The 50 grand you spent on your new kitchen did not add 50 grand to the value of your house. It just didn't. (laughs) So I think that's all useful information. Anything to add to that? That sounds spot on. It's uh, it's literally what someone's prepared to pay for it, uh, and if you're lucky, and the two people prepared to pay for it, then you're a, they're, you're in uh, jam. Yeah, yeah. And there we go. Right, Marcus. We will um, hear from you again in one year. Thank you very much for joining us, um, John. I will be torturing you again next week. Thank you very much for joining us, and all of you. Thank you for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money. We will be back again next week. In the meantime, if you like our show, rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And by the way, do also get in touch and let us know how much you think house prices are going to fall. And I would be particularly interested to hear from buy-to-let investors. Are you selling? Are you holding? Are you even thinking of buying more? Let us know. I would be interested in that. This episode was hosted by me, Meryn Somerset-Webb. It was produced by Samasadi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. And special thanks, obviously, to Marcus and to John. Finally, our weekly reminder to sign up to John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled, in which, by the way, if you send us in what you think about house prices, we will sum it all up. The link for that is in the show notes. I know I said finally, I was wrong. That was not finally. Here is finally. This is your last chance to sign up to be in the audience of a live taping of the podcast. This is happening next week. Take it back. I won't be torturing John next week. It's somebody else. This is at the Bloomberg Invest event on the 22nd of March. It's called Strategies for Wealth Creation. If you're in London, you can join in person. Everyone else can join online. Link is in the show notes for registration. Please do register. I'll be there on the day and John will as well. You are there, aren't you, John? Yeah, I'm there in the morning. Excellent. See you all there. Thank you very much. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., 
we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.